finish your classic metal show right here on the classicmetalshow.com. That, of course, was Metallica. That was Ride the Lightning. Um, and uh, on the line right now, we have a um, we have an author, we have a featured member of a documentary, and we have a guy who's whose craft, if you listen to this show or, you know, metal in general, you've definitely experienced something that he's run across and, and put in your hands, more or less. Uh, he discovered bands like uh, White Zombie and Flotsam and Jetsam and Metal Church and, of course, that little band we just played there, Metallica. He is the one, the only. He is Michael Alago. Michael, how are you, sir? Oh, good afternoon. Greetings from New York City. Doing pretty good, thank you. Why not? We woke up today, yeah. and uh, hopefully we're being safe in this crazy world that we're living in, and, you know, here we are. Right. Well, Michael, you you know what? People can look at this whole thing with corona as a bad thing, or I'm going to choose to look at it with a positive spin, saying that if it wasn't for the work that you've done over the last 35 years, a lot of us would be even more bored sitting at home today because you've put a lot of music in our ears to keep us busy while we sit at home quarantined. Oh, God. Well, thank you so much for saying that. You know, I was a really hard worker all those years at record companies. I must have spent about almost 25 years at record companies. And prior to that, from 1980 to 1983, I was the assistant booking director at the Ritz, which everybody knows in New York City, sure. present day as Webster Hall. So thank you very much for that. Sure. Well, Michael, let's let's dig a little bit in into your background before we get into, you know, the meat, meat of this. Um Talk a little sure. bit about how you got into the music business, because, you know, from everything that I've read about you, everything, everything about you is kind of opposite of the guys that I knew in the 80s that were in the music business. You know, you, you know, whether it was your heritage or, you know, being being a gay man or whatever, every single part of it does not fit the profile of, you know, the the typical 80s metal guy that was out there discovering music. <laughs> oh, gosh, where do I begin? Let's see. Um, I was a young Puerto Rican kid living in Brooklyn. Uh, like I say in my book that's about to come out, it's called I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death. Uh, I think I came out of the womb loving music. Okay. All I ever cared about was music. Um, I was lucky to have family members, specifically my Aunt Jenny. She played really cool music in the 70s, so I always wound up going to her home to listen to music. There were also shows on TV, like American Bandstand and Soul Train and uh, the Midnight Special and In Concert. And we got to see and hear a large range of artists on those shows, from top 40 artists to people like David Bowie and Alice Cooper and Todd Rundgren. Uh, um, so a lot of that at an early age informed my listening, along with the radio station, 77 WABC AM radio. Okay. AM radio in the 70s was not fo heavily formatted like it is today. That's why I just I can't even listen to music these days. Right. I'm not a top 40 kind of guy. Sure. Um, so watching all those shows and listening to all that radio was a great inspiration for me. Um, it made me think, wow, 
I want to be in the music business. But being a 15, 13, 14, 15-year-old kid, what does that mean when you don't play an instrument? Right. You just are in love with music. So we'll fast forward just a little bit, and let's just say I'm 15, 16 years old. I go to my dad's office usually on Saturday afternoons in the East Village. Um, he worked for IBM, and uh, there was an international newsstand on its corner, real little newsstand packed with everything, and I gravitated towards a weekly publication newspaper called The Village Voice. The Village Voice had everything in it, music, art, theater, porn, and politics. I could have given a darn about politics, but I loved everything else in that publication. <laughs> that also informed me as a teenager about what I was about to experience. CBGB, Max's Kansas City, Great Gildersleeves, On the Rocks, um, off-Broadway theater in the East Village. Uh, there was a host of things that just interested me at a very young age. We're going to fast forward a little bit again. We're going to be, it's 1980, and uh, this is the beginning of MTV. So I'm taking lunch one day in the East Village. I walk across a beautiful build. I walk across uh, past, I, let's start all over. I passed a beautiful building and it was art deco. And I thought, wow, this is really beautiful. So I see a sign on the door, just on a plain white piece of paper that says video club opening. And that intrigued me. I walk into the club. It's gorgeous. It's all art deco from the 1920s. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. So a man in the balcony was, and I always say this, I tell this story a lot. It was like the Wizard of Oz. He looks down and he says, kid, what can I do for you? I said, well, I don't know. This video club thing sounds interesting. Right. I, I, I would like to have a job. And he just looked at me like bewildered. And he's like, um, do you have a resume? And I said, I do not have a resume. I work at the, I go to school. I go to the School of Visual Arts, and I work at a pharmacy in the East Village. Well, something about that humored him, and he said, come up to my office. So we start talking. We start talking about everything from the great American songbook back in the day to popular music of that day, okay. 1980 and earlier. So we have this long conversation, and he says to me, you know what? I'm going to give you a job. You're going to open my mail, you're going to get my lunch, and you're going to answer my phone. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, I think I'm in the music business. <laughs> I was 19 years old. Right. I, was a, I was a sponge. I listened to everything this man, Jerry Brandt, B-R-A-N-D-T, um, said on the telephone. He was on the telephone every single day with booking agents. Okay. That room, I think, holds maybe 1,500, 1,600 people. And I listened carefully to how he spoke to these agents and how, what kind of picking up and offers and ticket prices. And I don't know, about a year and a half or so later, um, I became the assistant booking person. Okay. I, was, I was making those phone calls as well. And also it involved a lot of younger bands, a lot of established artists, and it was incredible. And that really was the beginning of 
<laughs> my life in music from 1980 to 1983, and it's th- thanks to my first mentor, Jerry Brandt. Sure. Now, how do you how do you make the jump from from that to kind of more being a being an ear to creativity? Because you know, and, and, right. we, and we obviously will get to Metallica at, at some point, but I mean, just it at least from an outsider looking in. Just the sure. fact that you could listen to a band like them, and I'm 51 years old, so I certainly remember when they came up, and mm-hmm. you couldn't hear that, and there's no way that you heard what they were doing at that point, and were like, yeah, this is going to be the biggest thing in the world. You know, there was something in your, you know, in your mind that could register apart from what the rest of the world was doing. Do you think it's just your background or do you think that there was something, you know, unique and special to the way you heard things that that led you into that into discovering not only Metallica but a lot of creative bands? Sure. Um good question. Uh let's see. I'm at the Ritz from 1980 to 1983. I feel like there's more out there in the world. I was going out with somebody. His name was Mitchell Krasnow. His dad was at Warner Brothers, Bob Krasnow. Bob was leaving to go revamp Elektra Records. Mm -hmm. Elektra Records was in the crapper, and Bob was leaving to become the new chairman. Mitchell told his dad about me. I had a meeting with Bob. I had that same conversation with Bob like I had with Jerry. Music, all kinds of music. Bob was also this art maven. So we started talking about the up-and-coming art scene in the East Village. Uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Keith Haring, Robert Longo, uh, 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 Richard Hamilton. I don't know if I just said that. There were art galleries opening in the East Village. And he just loved that not only did I know about all types of music, um, I knew about little bits of the art world and what was up and coming. So we had our meeting, we shook hands, and he said, I'll give you a call soon. About two weeks later, he called me and said almost the same thing. He said, I like you, and I'm going to give you a job. You are going to be in our A&R department. I, all I remember saying was, wow, Bob, this is incredible. Thank you. I hang up the phone, and I have no fucking idea what A&R means. <laughs> exactly. So I call up some friends in the music business. They laugh in my face, and they were like, you are a lucky man. I said, exactly. Now tell me what A&R means. Right. It means artists in repertoire. Now for all the people out there who are listening to this, that what we're doing, or if it's transcribed, reading this, A&R stands for Artist and Repertoire. Artist and Repertoire Department is the most important department at a record company. If you don't have great artists and great records, it's pointless. Mm-hmm. And if you don't make great records that sell, one would probably be out of a job. Sure. So I was thrilled I was now working for a huge corporation, as you know, Electra was part of WEA, Warner Electra Atlantic, sure. Time Warner. Um, and I don't know, I'm just, I get this job, I get this wonderful young assistant, her name was Tony, T-O-N-I, just in case. And um, um, I, 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 the same thing again, Bob Krasnow was very generous 
with me. I was allowed to listen in on his phone calls with managers, lawyers, publishers, and yes, sometimes artists. Again, I'm, a, I'm young, I'm probably 22 years old, I'm a sponge, and I just pick everything up. Sure. So with, uh, now that I have that job, at some point, Bob starts sending all these managers, lawyers, publishers, artists my way. So now, between that and many, many boxes of unsolicited cassettes and vinyl, that was my job listening morning, noon, and night. How we also did things back in the day around 83 is I would get all my favorite music publications from across the United States, Canada, Germany, London. And my assistant Tony and I would start cutting everything out in the, it, that sounded interesting. Tony knew I had eclectic taste, but I didn't like anything too pop. She right. knew I liked things that were dark, and um, so that's where we went to. We cut out all these publications every week when they came in or every month, and we just started calling people out of the blue. <laughs> I mean, maybe it was unconventional, unconventional, but I didn't know any better, sure. and that's okay. Because at one point in my career, very early on, um, I, I don't remember if I made the phone call, or he made the phone call. I meet with John Zazula, Johnny Z oh, at yeah. Force Records. Mm-hmm. Johnny's totally fucking fabulous. He is so smart, so creative. So he has this little indie label, Megaforce. He has records out like Raven, Anthrax, Metallica, probably Testament, and a host of others. They're small. They don't, they don't have a lot of money. They were looking for major distribution. One of the things um, that we talked about was he loved Raven so much. Sure. And he thought they were going to be the biggest thing ever. So at some point, I gave him $5,000. I said, give me back five songs, make it fantastic. But the problem is I heard Kill 'Em All. Okay. Now, I think when we all heard Kill 'Em All, for all of us who love our rock and roll very hard, this was so different. Oh, yeah. I never heard anything like that. We were all listening to traditional stuff right. still. But this was something that was fast. It combined Speed, punk, traditional hard rock and metal, British hard rock and metal, and it was like this crazy stew of sounds, and there you go. You get Kill 'em All. Well, I lost my mind. (laughs) So, uh, let's see, long story short, um, I had some business to do in San Francisco. It's 1983 still. And I knew Metallica were playing at the Stone. I go see them at the Stone. Um, I lost my mind, basically. I thought, James is the most charismatic front man I've ever seen up to that point. And I've been going to concerts at least since I'm 13, about 10 years then. So now I'm 23-ish. And uh, so there they are on stage, these wild, young 20-year-olds doing their thing, very clear. I, I, I knew that they were very clear about their intention. And on stage, it was just wild. Like I said, James was 
a ringleader. He knew how to whip a crowd into a frenzy, and I responded to that. When it was over, I gave Lars my card. I introduced myself to him, and he looked at me like, wait a minute. You're a record executive from Alexa Records. <laughs> Meanwhile, because, you know, if he's 21, I'm 23. Right. Right. I'm there in jeans and a probably fucked up Misfits t-shirt. And he was like, okay. <laughs> so I guess he did a little research on me. And um, that was that at that point in time. I go back to New York. They're doing their thing. At some point, he calls me at the beginning of 1984 and says, I don't know if you're still interested in us, but we're coming to play Roseland. Okay. Uh, August of 1984, with those mega-force bands, Anthrax and Raven. I said, absolutely. So I, um, I go to the, the event, and um, it was incredible. I bring Bob Krasnow, our chairman, Mike Bone, our head of uh, radio promotion. And, you know, they were mostly at the bar. Me, I was drunk, threw myself into the audience, and, you know, basically lost my mind once again. Right. And I was thrilled. And I go backstage after the show, and uh, the guys are just toweling off. Lars recognizes me. And I was like, listen, man. I got to have you guys in my life. It's, it's ama this is amazing. So they're looking at me. Oh, because I was, I was a little tipsy. And I was hugging everybody and kissing everybody. And, La and every so they're looking at Lars like, who is this, please? And they're like, guys, this is Michael Alago from Electra Records. Well, there was a, we, everybody had a big laugh. And uh, the next day, they came to my office. We're sitting in a conference room. Uh, and uh, I let them know that I know you're still under contract to Megaforce, but you really need to be on a major label. This, this shit's going to blow up. Right. Um, I speak to Johnny Z at some point. I let him know that the Raven demos are terrific, but I want to sign Metallica. Okay. Well, that conversation didn't go too well. <laughs> um, but again, long story short, what wound up happening is his business affairs people, called our business affairs people, uh, a deal was struck, and everybody not only walked away financially happy. That night at Roseland, Raven got signed to Atlantic. Okay. Anthrax got signed to Island, and I signed Metallica, which wow. changed the course of metal, what people were listening to. Other A&R people wanted their own version of Metallica. And the rest is history. Sure. Did you feel, when you, because I'm sure you, even with the people from Elektra being with you to see them, I'm sure yep. when you sat in the, you know, in the conference room the next day or whatever at the office, that mm -hmm. there had to be some pushback because let's face I mean, they were making their money at the time off of bands like Motley Crue and Dokken and, you know, absolutely. You're absolutely right. How? Well, you know, yep. Bob, Bob Krasnow, our chairman hired me for a reason. Right. And the A&R department was either going to sink or swim. Right. I was intending on swimming. 
so the guys were in the office. I, or, I tell this story all the time. I ordered beer and Chinese food. I gave them, it was 1984, so I gave them cassettes of some of the stuff they knew that was on Electra, like the Stooges, the Doors, the MC5, Cliff Burton, God rest his soul, um, liked sometimes things a bit esoteric. We distributed a label called Nunsuch. So I gave him a box of Nunsuch vinyl. Um, a few minutes later, I called Bob Krasnow in our office. He walked in very regal, pinstripe suit, cigar, very corporate. And he said, you know what, guys? That was incredible last night. And if Michael wants you here, we want you here. Okay. And that was, that just, that, that, it just happened that simple. Um, so like I said, a deal was struck. And at some point, I had to verse everyone in the company at, Electra about Metallica. You know, they, everybody listened to Kill 'Em All. Uh, we talked about how incredibly popular they were with the metal underground. This was not going to be about radio at all. Right. The key here to selling those records were giving them for the next year tour support because once they're out there and people see how extraordinary these people are, this young band are. They're just going to buy the fucking record. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. Yeah. Well, you know what, Michael? And it's funny you bring yeah. that up. I'm going to tell you a quick story. Um, okay. <laughs> I, the, fir the first time, because it relates to that. I, Great. I, I was 15, 15 years old. I was in my, my high school, had a high school radio station. And for, <laughs> okay. a, for a field trip, we went to CMJ in Washington one year. It was 80, oh boy. in 84, uh -huh. I think it was. And... um. And I went, and, and I'm sure you went to these things before where they used to have like of an... Yes, of course I did. So, I hope you weren't at the one where they wouldn't let me get off the panel, <laughs> and so I had a piss in a beer mug, and I put it back on the table. No, that wasn't Every, People were mortified. <laughs> anyway, continue no, your story. Now, I was at the one with, that Metallica was one of the many, many bands that played in the little ballroom that they had set up. And, you know, and it, and it was like Elliot Easton played at this thing. And, oh, and yeah, Yellow, okay, okay. And, you know, a bunch of these bands played. And as a 15-year-old kid, I wasn't supposed to get into this ballroom, you know, because, you know, of they course. were selling alcohol and whatever in there. And I just wasn't supposed to be there. But I snuck out, and I go, in, and I go into the room, and the room was empty. And I mean empty. There was the staff. There was me and maybe two other people. And this band that I'd never heard before came on. In fact, I still remember they came on right after Loudness played. The band oh, boy. <laughs> Loudness. And I didn't know anything about them, but I was one of like three people in this room. And Metallica played with the same intensity that I've seen them play when they played Day on the Green in 91 in front of 40,000 oh, people. It was that yeah. same rage. It was that same intensity. And as a 15-year-old kid, I was done. They It completely transformed me. I was done with Motley Crue. I was done with... <laughs> Madonna, you know, because I was listening to a lot of the romantics and stuff like that. All of a you sudden, all of a sudden, it was Metallica, and it was because of just experiencing them. And mm -hmm. and the thing was that not only was it the experience, I I ran into James on the last day, and and uh, you know you'll remember this too. On the last day, all the artists had like a room, and you could walk around getting all their tchotchkes and stuff. And oh, okay, and. 
but I, I ran into James and I said, Hey man, you guys were so great, you know, whatever. And, and he was like, Oh, there were people in the room. He had no idea that I was even in the room. You know, Love it. It, it was just one of those things, but it goes to what you're saying about, they had such a charisma on stage that you, people only needed to see them once to get it. And it's ironic that you were in such a position to, to have that same experience, but to propel them to basically, you know, I mean, they obviously became the biggest band in the entire world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's an amazing, it's an amazing story. And it's amazing that, that, Maybe maybe there is something to being in the right place at the right time, no? Well, the right place at the right time and still being an early in my early first years as an A&R executive. Sure. What I noticed about myself was <sighs> I felt like I knew about artists who were charismatic and had something to say. Now, keep in mind, I was listening to lots of music sure. every day, morning, noon, and night. Sure. Now, there was rotten music, so those people got a very kind form letter back. Thank you, but no thank you. Right. I'm just paraphrasing right now. Uh, then there was tons of really good cassettes. Right. And they would, like, I would drive me crazy because, oh my God, this is good. And then, you know, you'd go see somebody, and yeah, they were good. But like I always say, good ain't great. Right. You really have to, uh, you have to be great. First of all, if I tried to sign everything good, I'd probably bankrupt the company. There wouldn't be enough hours in the day to give the artist the attention and support needed. So I really focused on not signing everything that came across my desk Mm -hmm. and just working with people that I felt had something to say, say, had universal appeal and were great storytellers. Whether the storyteller was a singer songwriter like Tracy Chapman, who I had the privilege of working with, although I did not sign her, um, to Metallica, you know, totally different, uh, types of artists, right. and if you want to throw in John Lydon from the Sex Pistols and right. Public Image Limited in there, another wildly charismatic guy, when he walks in the room, he is the smartest person in the room. Sure. And I picked up on that. You know, we met in 81 when I did this debacle show with Pill at the Ritz. I've told it many times. It's in my book. It's, it, uh, it's in the film. And... Um, we became friends in 81. I signed him to Electra in 85. I had to drop him in 86 because of uh, uh, just we, we did such an expensive deal with him. It wasn't working out. And now here we are in 2020. We're talking about him. He's in my documentary. I'm in his documentary. And John and I never had a bad word with each other, ever, sure. ever. So I don't even know what your question was anymore. <laughs> I just went off on a tangent, okay. but go ahead. Well, well, you know, the other hallmark, at least, at least in my opinion of, of yes. what you heard, what you seemingly heard from these bands was you somehow 
heard it or detected insane creativity that most bands don't have. And I'm, and I'm certainly not saying that bands aren't creative, but when you look at the roster of bands that, that you signed, that you worked with, whether it was, I mean, obviously Metallica is the obvious and they certainly changed, sure. changed their sound numerous times over the course of their career. But if you look at a band like a metal church, like a Kurt Vanderhoof or white zombie, Rob zombie, you know, sure. these are some amazingly creative people and mm-hmm. it's it's interesting, far more creative than regular run of the mill bands. And well, right, I was just going to say to you, if you're out there, if you're performing live, if you are an artist, it depends. There's creativity going on there, just by nature, by default. Sure, but it's the level of creativity that you and I are talking about right now. Sure, and uh, so you know. Kurt Vanderhoof is amazing. He writes, he produces, he works on the art direction for the packaging. And when I met him, uh, I just knew I want to be involved with this guy because he is so dedicated to his craft that I have no worries here. I just pop in and out of the studio. I hear the songs. I make sure the songs are as great as he tells me they are. And then we're, you know, then he starts making a record that has a beginning, a middle, and an end so that it takes us, the audience, the fans, the listener, somewhere. And that's what Kurt's always done to this day, you know? Thank God I was uh, involved with them for... I picked up the first album to license. I made The Dark with them uh, that Mark Dodson produced. Um, Then there was Blessing in Disguise. And to make sure that during this whole coronavirus insanity, that he was home, that he was taking care of himself, that he was stocked with food. And, you know, it wasn't even about music. It was just about humanity and about friendship all these years. so, like I said, it's about the level of creativity, and that level of creativity better be very high right. and great. Absolutely. Now, now, Michael, looking back yes. at 1981, 2, 3, whatever, no secret that the metal community was, was pretty homophobic, to be just straight up honest about it. Sure. It, it just was. And yet you were able, as an openly gay man, to penetrate that... that Scene. I don't know if that's such a good word yeah, to no, use, but as, go ahead. As soon as it came out of my mouth, I wanted to pull it back. But, <laughs> but well, but, that's... well, do you think? No, I hear where you're going with this. Well, well hold you on, know, hold on. Let me ask. The, a, let, let me ask yeah, the question because it please. might not be where you're where where you're going. Do you okay. think that the bands didn't care, or do you think that they were tolerant because you held the keys to their future? Mm, very good question. Um, I am a man who has never been in a closet before. I don't know where that bravado uh, 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 came from as a youngster. I was always myself. I never cared what people thought about me. I always thought we're all human beings and that people are going to like you or not like you. So starting from there... um, like I said, I was always at Lamore in Brooklyn, uh, all the underground clubs in the tri-state area. I was out every night. I was open. People knew that. And, you know, listen, 
we're all kind of the same anyway. And when I met with young artists in my office and it was just us talking, it, was, it had nothing to do with like sexuality at all. It was just about the music. Now, the other part of your question, sure, maybe somebody tolerated, which is a word I don't like, but maybe people tolerated me because, like you said, I held the keys potentially to their future. But you know what? I never thought of it like that. I just thought of here I am, here you are, we're talking about music, Dot, dot, dot. Right. I, you know, I don't know where else to take this. Right. No, and, and that's fair. I mean, it, it's just... Sure. It, it's just such a... I, I mean, I don't think that... I think, I, I you know, I've been a very unique, and I, I hope this doesn't come out egotistical, but I've been a very unique presence yeah. on the metal scene and in the music business because I was this young kid who didn't give a shit and I signed who I wanted to sign. I wouldn't sign a band if other A&R people were like, oh my God, this is going to be the biggest thing. If I heard it and I didn't like it, I didn't sign it. I, really, it was all, everything musical was very personal to me. Sure. And that's how I did my job, whether people liked it or not. And that's, I think that's why I was successful, because I was always very specific about what I wanted to sign. Sure. No question. Now, Michael, which, which bands, looking back now after, after you know, this many years, which bands did sure. you miss on? Which ones did you get tapes from? And you were like, eh, probably not going to make it. And then they became monster bands. Um, oh, that's a tough one, only because... Some of my memory is just so terrible. So uh, if it was not good, if I thought it was not good to begin with, I just quickly forgot about it. Okay. So I don't know. I don't really have a good answer for you there. Okay, fair enough. Um, what I was, you know what? I'll just say that everyone that I worked with, whether it was Swans, Metal Church, Flotsam and Jetsam, Dawkins, Cindy Lauper, Nina Simone, John Lydon, Metallica. I was just grateful that I was able to recognize all these people, and now Tracy Chapman, but I didn't discover some of these people. Sure. Some of them, I was just the A&R executive on their recordings. But to be blessed with all, and the word that's going to keep coming up between you and I, is creativity. Sure. The extraordinary creativity that these people that I just mentioned had was so phenomenal. Sure. So I felt like in my A&R career, I was just blessed, and I was grateful to have that job. Sure. What do you Period. Think, what do you think of the industry today with, you know, obviously WIA is, you know, a memory, you know, and, and, and everything like it is such a memory to now, you know, Spotify and everybody just doing their own music. And it's such a different animal. You know, I th I, my own personal thought is that by reducing the record labels, you know, the way they have and cutting out A&R departments and whatnot, you've really taken all the quality control out of it, which is why you have nobody that's rising to the top. But I'm curious as somebody that has been in the industry for all these years, mm -hmm. what do you think, you know, looking at it? Sure. I, again, I feel uh, very grateful. I feel I was blessed that from 1980 to at least 2005, I was 
in a fantastic, crazy, sometimes drug-fueled <laughs> music business. People were buying records. Right. People were buying CDs. Uh, at some point, anyway, yeah, CDs, period. Um, I stopped working in 2005 officially at labels because I wasn't feeling well again. And I also saw that at the beginning of all the internet starting to happen, that people were file sharing, downloading, uh, basically stealing. And I really, that was not for me. So I just thought, you know what? I'm done right now. And if I want to come back eventually again in a different form, maybe I'll do that. But, you know, so what I think, like, let's just talk about 2020. Wow, there aren't record companies that are great anymore. But there always is an A&R department. So just let's be clear about that. Because I think if there wasn't, what would we be doing? What, who, who's making those records? Yeah. Certainly, like radio promotion people and CEOs are not making those records. So, yes, there is an A&R person there. But these days, you know, young people, um, the landscape has so shifted. And people just aren't buying records like they used to. Yes, vinyl, which I adore, vinyl has made a resurgence. Um, but I always tell young people, if you are dedicated to what you want to do with your life, you must go out there and play live and be the best that you can be. Uh, play as if your life depended on it, because you never know who's in the audience who could help you get to that next level. Create mailing lists. Have merch available for the, for the, for the fans that are coming. And it's a very different world. And in that early stages, maybe you're not going to be on radio. But you know what? If you have a couple of dollars in your pocket and you and your band members go, say, let's go to the garage and make a video of our best song that we have. You know, again, always putting your best foot forward because you don't know who's out there in this day and age who could help you get to that next step. So it's all, it's almost like punk rock, DIY, do it yourself. Because that's how everybody's doing it these days until they get some kind of interest from an independent, a major, um, period. Did I answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Well, Michael, real quick, and I don't want to dwell on this as much as as much because honestly, the stories in the book answer this question. But I wanted to talk a little bit about your health. You know, you're you're you make it clear that, you know, HIV has been a part of your life, but it doesn't it does not seem like it has changed like nowhere in here i mean it 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 reads it reads as brutal as as it is but at the same Mm -hmm. time it doesn't seem like it changed your life your your attitude your attitude toward life you know how how did you find out and more importantly how did you combat becoming like so many people do when they go through any life-changing experience and and not go into oh poor me syndrome Mm. Okay, another good, another good question. Um, I acquired HIV in the 80s. Um, the, 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 the community was only filled with fear because it was a death sentence. Right. I did not have full-blown AIDS yet, um, but I was not feeling so good. Mm-hmm. And 
so at some point, you know, I, I, I got this incredible doctor. Uh, her name was Barbara Starrett. I stayed asymptomatic for almost 10 years. And then at one point, I got the mumps. I got anemia. I got all this fucking stuff right. that was bringing me down fast. Sure. Fast. And um, there was no medicine yet. It was very, I was scared. I was very, very scared because a lot of my friends in the gay community were dying immediately. So when Barbara said, Barbara Starrett, my doctor, said to me, um, you need to go to the hospital. I said, Barbara, I'm not going because if I go, I will surely die. Now, I had great health insurance from Time Warner. So this is kind of unbelievable because Barbara would come visit me in the morning at 5 o'clock in the morning on her bicycle. When, right before she had to go visit hundreds of men and some women at St. Vincent's Hospital because they were dying. So the best she could do for me then was give me IV vitamin drips, some pills that people were talking about from here and from Mexico. I always tell people, and I say it in the book, it was very Dallas Buyers Club. And I just held on. Sure. I just held on. And at some point, there was a medication and, uh, called AZT. And Barbara said to me, as your primary care physician, I have to tell you this. There is, a, there is a pill. I don't want you to take it. I said, Barbara, you've kept me alive this long. I'm not taking it. So mm -hmm. all my friends, all my buddies who took AZT died from it. Mm -hmm. It was prematurely, in my opinion, pre. pre <laughs> prematurely approved by the FDA. Right. So I'm still on my sofa dying and shitting and pissing and vomiting, and I'm a mess, a mess, really a mess. Mm -hmm. And at one point she said there is an, antro, an antiviral that's coming to the marketplace that's approved, and this is what I want you to take. So I started taking it, and about a year or so later, I was up again. I was working at Electra. It's the 90s, so people still talk behind your back like, you know, he was sick. But, and I was skinny, 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 skeletal almost. Right. But you know what? I went to work. I did my job. Believe it or not, I was still drinking then, which re I, yeah, please don't ask. And, um, you know, I never got sick with full-blown AIDS ever again. I have HIV. Sometimes my immune system acts up, especially in the winter. When it's dead of winter, my, 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 my lungs hurt. I get bronchitis. I acquired asthma these last couple of years. And sometimes it turns into pneumonia, which I always pray it doesn't. Mm. In any event, right now in 2020, I haven't drank in close to 13 years. I'm in a 12-step program that helps me stay strong be reliable to people, show up for my life, be responsible so that people know they can rely on you, on me, and that, um, and my, my viral load is at zero. It's undetectable in my body because I take great medicines, I have great care, and I stopped all the fucking shenanigans. Mm -hmm. So it really is a blessing, this whole story, and I am filled with gratitude because you know what? I'm alive.
I'm yeah. well. I'm going out all the time to St. Vitus Bar in Brooklyn. Uh, I just got a band signed to Century Media called Ether Coven. They're fantastic. They're brutal as fuck. We just got Eric Rattan from Morbid Angel to produce their album. It just came out a couple of weeks ago. They're going to be going on the road. And yes, I'm still helping bands, and I still like things dark and heavy with something to say. No. Period. <laughs> no question, man. Well, Michael, your your story is absolutely fascinating. People should definitely pick up the book. It is a great read. It's called I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death. And uh, if, if you don't check you out there, they can also check out the documentary, which is on Amazon Prime. Who the fuck is that And, and Netflix, coming and, up on three years. Excellent. So either one of those, check it out. It's called... Who the fuck is that guy? The fabulous journey of Michael Lago. And Michael, um, as a tradition on the show, we always let the artist pick a closing track and maybe tell us a quick story about it. So it could be from anybody you want. So who would you like us to wrap this one up with? Can we wrap it up with Allison Chains Wood? Sure. Okay, let's wrap it up with Allison Chains Wood, one of the greatest bands to ever come across our paths. Lane Staley, another charismatic guy, God rest his soul. If Wood is not an extraordinary song that when you're in, when you're in a car racing somewhere, playing that, when you're getting ready for your day in the morning, pumping it up to 10, what an extraordinary song to listen to. So let's close out with Alice in Chains, if you don't mind. All right, let's do it right now. It is Alice in Chains. This is Wood right here on your classic metal show.